welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Kale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the third chapter. Luke writes, as the people were filled with expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his thrashing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Clearly this morning's gospel lesson, a, uh, a moment of revelation for Jesus. huh? Uh, Luke has this uh, uh, spoken to Jesus after his baptism. It's a very personal thing. While Jesus was praying, it came to him. He, he perceived it. He experienced it. Uh, the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Father. You are my son. You are my son. Not another, but you. <coughs> somewhat different than other uh, records of Jesus' baptism where the Holy Spirit uh, is uh, descending but the voice is for benefit of the church for all. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Well, we are this morning in the season of Epiphany again. Uh, the third season of the church calendar year. The first season marks uh, uh, or speaks of events in the life of Christ, this first part of the year. And the second part of the year after Pentecost, the calendar will address us and focus upon the early times of the church. Thus far, Advent spoke of Jesus' anticipated coming, and then Christmas of his birth, and now Epiphany. Epiphany celebrates the appearance of God, both through the humble acknowledgments of the wise men of last week, and now by Jesus' appearance on the banks of the Jordan River, there to begin his public ministry. Jesus began his public ministry, we are told, at about age 30, and that it lasted for about three years. He began his ministry by being baptized by his elder cousin, John. John had pursued his own calling to serve God, 
And as we are given a bit of a description of him as living reclusively uh, in the desert, living on locusts and wild honey, I suspect that even among his family, uh, John was perceived as somewhat different. But now uh, the time had come. The time came for John to pass the mantle uh, to another. John was indeed there and had played his part and had a part to play. But it would be Jesus now who would increase even as John decreased. With Jesus' baptism, a time of preparation, John's time, a time of preparation, became the time for action, the time for activity. And we do well to bear in mind that John's baptism was not the template for Christian baptism. That would be given later at the end of the Gospels, not as it was understood by John in any way, but rather as instituted by Christ and his command to go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in that Trinitarian formula that helps to identify and define the church, the one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But uh, again, uh, to the surprise of many uh, who had suspected that perhaps John was the Messiah himself. He had disciples, he challenged uh, both the religious authority and challenged the governmental authorities, and they thought maybe he was the one. John swore that he himself was not the Messiah, but rather one who was to prepare the way for another. John's purpose was very specific. John was to make way for what would come next. What comes next? And what came next would lie ultimately so far outside and beyond human comprehension as to boggle the mind. What came next would culminate after three years of of ministry in the most profound faith statement of all, the resurrection. But before that, John promised divine recompense for all that had gone before, a promised gathering in his words of wheat into the granary of God and unquenchable fire that would burn the chaff of unrighteousness to ashes. The law and the gospel would indeed be fulfilled and it was no more containable or controllable than the rising of the sun would be. As the church celebrated throughout Christmas, God was truly in the midst of the people in a new way. That's part of our Christmas proclamation, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. God with us not to condemn us, but to redeem us, to save us. Through Jesus' ministry, this becomes increasingly evident and clear his words, his deeds. The kingdom of God was nearer than ever it had been. Jesus' gospel proved to be good news to those who were downtrodden and afflicted, even as his words exposed those of self-serving privilege and self-righteousness. There would be no room for that in the kingdom of God. It is therefore perhaps not surprising from a pragmatic sense, it's not surprising that for getting too far out of his lane, remember Jesus was a carpenter's son, he was not schooled formally, Jesus would incur the wrath of those who benefited most 
by the unholy alliance that had been created between God's chosen and Rome, the secular power of the world. Scribes and Pharisees, those who benefited most, would rise in a fit of pique at Jesus' words, for they stung. They stung. They were hard sometimes. And even those who tried to maintain balance and some perspective, a pragmatic balance between honoring God and bowing before a pagan power would find Jesus and his unyielding fidelity to God to be challenging. And I think old Nicodemus is a good case in point for that, huh? He comes to Jesus by night and tries to sort out what Jesus is saying. Such spiritual conflict would eventually lead to the pragmatic but deadly conclusion on the part of the Sanhedrin, the powerful Jewish court, that, in their words, it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Jesus' baptism opened a tumultuous three-year ministry that would not only shake Rome to its foundations, but forever change how men and women would relate to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To their heirs, to us as the church, that is, to our posterity, the words of the prophet Isaiah ring true. Okay, Recall that last week we talked about the minor prophets. Micah, obscure little Micah, and yet from his words, Herod found out where the Christ child was born. This week we turn to one of the major prophets, perhaps the most uh, known of the major prophets, to Isaiah. And Isaiah's words to the church would ring true as they looked to them and saw in them uh, promises fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Isaiah said, because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you, do not fear. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Okay? Do not fear. We have shared together before and need to remind ourselves from time to time that the opposite of fear is faith. The opposite of fear is faith. Therefore, do not fear. Can be said, have faith. Only believe. Have faith. This concept, these words are stunning and expansive, truly prophetic words. And I'm going to suggest to you that Israel remained God's chosen people by birthright. By birthright. But we, you and I, the church, have become God's people, have become God's chosen by faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that John suspected this when he asked of Jesus from the desperate precincts of Herod's dungeon, are you the one? Are you the one to come or should we wait for another? And do you recall how Jesus answered? Typical of Jesus. Not with a simple yes or no. I'm always fascinated with the way Jesus so often uh, prefaces an answer with a question. What do you think? 
he would ask. What do you think? As he often did, Jesus answered in a way that left his hearers, his audience, to decide. For example, when asked uh, straight out, are you the one, Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples to take this message to him. Jesus said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus' answer leads his audience, his hearers, through the gospel, leaves you, leaves me, with this moment of decision. It's the question, ultimately, that he asked Peter and the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Now, although I love science, no amount of science can answer that question for me, nor should it. The question is, who do you? Not another, not some ancient time faraway place, but who do you say I am? Here I turn to the author, C.S. Lewis, and he put it well. When C.S. Lewis asserted that there's only one of three possible answers to that question, one of three can be correct. Jesus Christ was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Son of God. Three possible answers. Okay? Either he was a liar and he sought and knew he deceived from the get-go. Or he was a lunatic and did not understand anything at all. Or he was who we proclaim him to be, the very son of God. The universe of possible answers, you see, is no larger today than it was when C.S. Lewis made this observation, or for that matter, the day when our Lord stepped into the muddy waters that cleanse the soul, the Jordan River. For from that moment on, the beginning of his public ministry, and it's interesting to note that that's, that's where the Gospel of Mark begins, is with Jesus' baptism, not the Christmas story or not the wise men's story in Matthew, but Mark, the oldest, the first written Gospel, begins at the Jordan River. Okay. From that moment on, John decreased rapidly and quickly, disappeared from the scene even as Jesus grew into his reason for being, as he would later testify to Pontius Pilate with the words, For this I came into the world. This is why I was born. Soon, in a couple of weeks, we will begin the observance of the next season in the church year, that of Lent. Christendom will begin its walk with Jesus to the cross. I don't like Lent. Lent always a challenging time for me personally. We hide our alleluias and we seek to silence our pretensions. And for me, I find it a lonely, austere time of the year. Once again, the church has opportunity to answer C.S. Lewis's question. Once again, you have opportunity to answer C.S. Lewis's question. Was he a liar, a lunatic? Or are we here to worship the Son of God? Just as he did on the banks of the river Jordan, so he does today. Jesus calls us to faith in him. Remember, faith is the opposite of fear. 
Jesus calls us to faith and through faith to share with him in the cup he was to drink that the world might be saved. I leave you with this thought. And uh, I've shared it with you before, but I think uh, at this inflection point in our life in Christ together, uh, with an annual meeting following, with uh, or an annual meeting next week, with a special meeting following today, I leave you with this thought. Ending well is important. Ending, ending well is important. It is important so that we might begin well. So that we might begin well. And as I think of that, and when you know the answer to that, I'm going to suggest to you the kingdom of God is going to be very near. For you see, ending well that we might begin well, it is the song of death and resurrection. It is the song of death and resurrection. It's the church's song. We see it played out in nature every year. I so look forward to the spring when that which is dead lives again. It is the wisdom hidden within the cross. It is the law fulfilled by the gospel. Although our humanity might recoil from that message, by faith we pray for the grace to embrace it and to own it. Again, as the prophet Isaiah reminded God's people, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, do not fear. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Isaiah writes, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon and then Isaiah concludes with these words the mind of God laid bare my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways says the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let us be open to that Holy Spirit of which we heard today that it might rest upon us and through it we come to know the blessings of God. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 Kale Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.